BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. So-called welfare reform in the 1990s changed the nature of cash payments to people in need. A bipartisan majority argued that welfare wasn't just about helping people survive. Note, the cash payments became a tool for getting people to work. And to many people not on welfare, the theory sounded good. But what actually happened? The welfare rolls have fallen substantially, but what about the people who still need help? The new season of The Uncertain Hour, Marketplace's investigative podcast, examines the unintended consequences of welfare work requirements and how private companies have managed to capture millions of government dollars from that system. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Chrissy Clark's podcast, The Uncertain Hour, reports on people in the precarious seams of our economy. Past seasons of this marketplace-produced investment have brought us inside chicken farms and the drug war. The new one covers the rise of the welfare-to-work industrial complex, a web of private contractors, state and local governments, and consequential federal performance metrics. People on temporary assistance for needy families, or what we often call welfare, must work or be trying to work in order to receive their full cash benefits. And administering and complying with that necessity has become a big industry across the country. But is all that actually helping people more than simply giving people basic cash aid? Here to help us figure that out, we've got Chrissy Clark of Marketplace's investigative podcast, The Uncertain Hour. Welcome to the show. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, we. I, this is a really, really good podcast, and I want to start the show with the people that you were able to interview about their experiences in this kind of welfare-to-work machine. Like, kind of tell us what sort of situations you found people in, and what do they hope to have happen when they go to the government for this kind of assistance? Yeah, you know, I spoke with people. I focused a lot of my reporting in Wisconsin. And so the way that I met people is I was often like hanging around uh, welfare offices and and, and mm-hmm. intercepting people as they walked in. Um, and and then also just reaching out to a lot of community groups um, to see who, who has experienced cash assistance and the welfare to work um, kind of regime that uh, is part of that program now. And people found their way to the system for all kinds of reasons. But often it was, you know, a common story is 
you're you're hanging on, you're sort of living paycheck to paycheck. A lot of people that I spoke to had had jobs, mm -hmm. but then something happens that where the bottom falls out. And that could be something like um, actually having a baby. And if mm. you have if you have a low paying job that doesn't have maternity leave or paid maternity leave and you need to care for your new your newborn for the early weeks of their life, uh, you need to figure something out. So some people mm -hmm. come just for something like that. But then or there's also things violence, like domestic violence, right? Exactly. Yeah. Domestic violence, um, the death of a, of a loved one who was maybe helping support your family, um, sometimes mental health issues or or health, physical health issues. There's It's often sort of this breaking point moment mm -hmm. that sort of sends you falling through the cracks. And that's what cash assistance is meant to do is sort of catch you when there's nothing else, when you don't have families support you don't have you don't have the financial safety net personally to catch you that's what this program is meant to do is, is catch you in those moments so our current system derives from this bipartisan legislation that was signed into law by Bill Clinton in the 1990s before that how did the system work yeah. So before that, we had a system called um, Aid to Dependent Families, ADC, or Aid to Dependent Children, ADC. Um, and this was uh, sort of what a lot of people, I think, still think welfare is. It's kind of a no-strings-attached um, cash assistance uh, if you are, if you have a family, if you have kids who are under 18 and you are below a certain income threshold, and it's usually very, very poor, um, you would get you would get um, a small monthly check at the early in the dawn of this sort of program. Uh, these were actually called mother's pensions or um, widow's pensions. And the idea was to help this. They started back in the early 1900s. And the idea was to help often single mothers who were widowed or were on their own for whatever reason, who didn't have a, a sort of the traditional male breadwinner. It was to help them make ends meet so that they could raise their kids in their home. Um, and then... As and at that point, there were a lot of um, there were a lot of sort of litmus tests. There was a lot of a uh, question of who deserved this kind of help. Mm. Uh, early on, in the early parts of the program, there were a lot. Of, there was a lot of language, even in the sort of the way the programs were written. Um, you needed to be worthy or deserving of help, and of course, mm. that's a very subjective. <laughs> that's a very subjective thing, and. What may not be surprising to your listeners is that often worthy and deserving meant white. And mm. so in the early years of the program, really up until the 1950s, um, the vast majority of recipients of uh, this sort of uh, cash assistance for needy families were white. Uh, back in the mm. in the 30s, it was something like, I think, 3% of of families were black families who were receiving this. Wow. And lo and behold, as the um, as the as the roles started to become a little more inclusive and more black families were able to get onto it um, through actually a lot of uh, activism to sort of push these um, push states to be more inclusive in who they would who they deemed worthy. That is when these programs started to get a lot of scrutiny. And that is when the idea of work requirements first sort of came onto the scene. There were no work requirements um, for the first 60 years of the program. Well, and, you know, it's interesting because this argument was basically that 
welfare had created these perverse incentives that, you know, asked people to stay at home in exchange for money, basically. And that created a situation in which policymakers decided that they were going to change this entirely, right? So these reforms then instituted a whole bunch of legal checks. Can you tell us a little bit about, you know, what what do those actually look like in practice? Right. Sort of what what is what is actually a work requirement? I mean, often mm-hmm. what we hear is, um, you know, it, it it appeals the idea, the rhetoric really appeals to the American work ethic, to the American dream. This idea that a job is the best way out of poverty, that that government benefits without work requirements will disincentivize work, will kind of make make you lazy. Why should I work if I can just get this money? Um, and and I think there is a, a true belief among some of the people who support um, these programs and, and the welfare to work system that you know the best way out of job is to, the best way out of poverty is to work hard, get a job, and you can lift yourself from there. But when you actually look at the details, sort of the rubber where the rubber meets the road of what a work requirement actually means in the cash assistance system and, and temporary for assistance for needy families. It really is not about what we might think of as work. It's not necessarily mm. about you must have an, a paying job in order to get this um, in order to, to get this help. What it is is this 12 this list of 12 federally approved, quote, work activities. And so having mm. a paying job counts. But there are also things like um, doing unpaid uh, work experience at a for-profit business or a nonprofit <laughs> business um, and in exchange for your check, something that people often call work fair. Um, there's also um, taking motivational classes to help you develop job skills. There's vocational training. There's a, a number of things. Oh, there's also job search is a number one, uh, is, is a big one. And basically, what the fed, the main thing the federal government pays attention to, and therefore the states mm-hmm. who are implementing these programs, is whether or not the families who are receiving temporary assistance for needy families who are supposed to be doing one of these work activities for a certain number of hours are doing those work activities for a certain number of hours. And often it becomes really some people have called it it's more a paperwork requirement or a busy work hmm. requirement than actually a focus on helping people get jobs that will become family sustaining jobs that they can yeah. support a fa- that they, that they can actually lift themselves out of poverty on well and you know a bunch of the people that you talk to and I just want to play one shortcut of Darnetta who is one of your sources for this uh, podcast yeah. didn't feel as if these things were more than just checking boxes let's listen in I used to have a dog, and sometimes if you you water that little bone or treat to them to make them do a trick, because they want that treat, they're going to do whatever you say. That's, that's, that's what I felt like. You're going to do whatever we tell you to do in order to get this little money. That's a problem for me. That's how I felt. That's how I felt. This is Darnetta from uh, the Uncertain Hour podcast uh, produced by Marketplace. And Chris Clark hosts the show. She's here with us uh, this morning. We'd love to hear from you. Have you turned to a welfare cash aid program for help during hard times? What has your experience been like uh, either here in California and in the Bay Area or uh, somewhere else? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can email forum at kqed.org. 
find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. You know, one of the things maybe people might not be thinking of is there's all these tasks to be done, which means then somebody needs to check on all those things, right? Which then creates this huge need for a some kind of bureaucratic system, right, to make sure that people and states and counties are in compliance with the federal rules, right? Right. And in fact, I, I spoke with one um, one woman who works with a lot of uh, uh, welfare programs around the country, and she has described these programs as basically compliance machines, as sort mm-hmm. of paperwork chasing compliance machines. Because as we were talking about these, there's so much focus on our families, are the participants doing their required number of hours for the requ- um, to fulfill these work requirements? Because if you don't, if, if you don't meet those hours, the state has to report how many of the families on their caseload are doing the required number of work activities for the required number of hours. If they if they don't hit the targets, they risk losing federal funding for these programs. So it's a big deal. And so what it means is, you know, as you know, what is measured matters. Mm-hmm. So what it means is that kind of from the top down to the down to the case manager level, what a lot of people's time is spent doing is just chasing down uh, recipi- chasing down participants, seeing, do you have your timesheet that showed that you did these hours? You were, you were 10 minutes late. Why were you 10 minutes late? Do you have a good reason for that? And so much, so much energy is put into really the red tape and the, 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 the reporting that what a lot of case managers feel frustrated by Mm -hmm. is that they can't actually focus on why is this person here? They came because they were in a domestic violence situation Mm -hmm. and we need to help get them counseling. We, they don't, I mean, Darnetta is a perfect example. She fled uh, an abusive ex-boyfriend. She had been put in the hospital um, by when he beat her up one, Mm -hmm. one day. She was and what she ended up having to do is just focus on job search when what she needed was a much bigger trauma-informed care yeah we're talking about the welfare to work industrial complex with chrissy clark host and producer of the marketplace podcast the uncertain hour we'll be back with more right after the break Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the welfare-to-work industrial complex with Chrissy Clark, host and producer of the Marketplace investigative podcast, The Uncertain Hour. Before the break, we were talking about this compliance machine, all these different forces that have to make sure that people who would like cash aid from the government 
are participating in these work requirements. And if you want an amazing example of what neoliberalism is, the work requirements go hand in hand with the privatization, right, of checking up on all these people. So this class of companies with names like Maximus and have sprung up to both administer these programs and also surveil the participants. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you learned about these companies? Yeah. So um, as you mentioned at the beginning, um, a lot of what we know as sort of the welfare system today uh, started in the 1990s with what's known as welfare reform under Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich. Um, And at that point, not only were work requirements put into cash assistance um, at the federal level, and but also the this law in 1996 that was passed um, opened the door for state welfare offices to contract out the services um, of running these programs, enforcing the work requirements and um, running these welfare-to-work programs to private companies. And so not every state does this, but there are many states that have um, started contracts and privatized for the last 25 years aspects of their welfare programs to companies, as you said, uh, like Maximus, another big one is America Works, um, ResCare. Um, many of these, actually, there's uh, places in California that uh, contract out with these companies. These are for-profit companies. In the case of Maximus, it is a multi-billion dollar multinational corporation, and it got its start, actually. Um, it went public in 1997, I think, right after welfare reform was passed and right after the law allowed um, welfare offices to become privatized. And their whole business model is um, both um, they get paid to administer the program, to enforce work requirements, to assign work requirements, make sure that um, these uh, activities are being followed for the right number of hours. Um, And then they also get often, you know, it it varies contract by contract and state by state. Mm. But in many cases, and in Wisconsin where I focused, they have these performance outcome payments, payments, these sort of incentive payments, where they also get this extra money that's not to cover overhead, it's just kind of a bonus, if they get people into a job. And they take in, um, in Wisconsin, the companies that I looked at each took in about a million dollars a year just from these performance outcome mm. payments. But the rub of it is that these to to get one of them it's a very low criteria you have to the person has to has to have worked for about um to they have to have worked for about 30 days and they have to have made about $800 in that time so that's that means you might be getting a job that is temporary you might be getting a job that um that doesn't put you over the poverty line, that you still actually might need government assistance. But these companies are receiving a lot of money. And, you know, the 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 principle of it, you, you it makes sense. OK, well, we want to incentivize these mm-hmm. companies to actually be getting people into these jobs. But the kinds of jobs that they're getting them into don't often end up helping them climb out of poverty or even be able to leave government assistance in the end. So you start to wonder, is this money going to the right things? And that's also not just from your findings, right? There's been empirical social science that has been done comparing the outcomes of these you know, for-profit companies to, uh, to other things and found that it actually just doesn't work as they say it does or as it supposedly is intended to. 
Yeah, I mean, it, and and this is, I would say, across the board, whether, whether it is a government-run program or a privately-run program, there is not a lot of evidence that shows that these um, that these programs, these welfare to work programs are actually broadly getting people into jobs mm. that they can support a family on. And um, that there's been a lot of rigorous studies at this point since since the early 90s looking at programs. And what it what we see is that what these work requirements do a really good job at, is lowering caseloads and making the, as we were talking about, sort of all these hoops you have to jump through, all the, you often get sanctioned if you don't jump through the right hoop and you lose, um, you lose money. So a lot of, a lot of families have just decided this is too much work for the amount of, the amount of money that I'm actually getting. And so it's not worth it to even turn to welfare, even if I need it. So it has done a good job in lowering the caseloads, but what it has not done a good job in broadly, there are certainly some 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 success stories. Some people um, did find jobs and and were able to sort of climb up the economic ladder. But if you look on the whole, mm-hmm. most of these compliance-based programs do not end up getting people in the long run into a place where they mm-hmm. are out of poverty, financially stable, and um, with jobs that are lasting. Yeah. Let's bring in a caller who wants to add another dimension to the conversation. Uh, Camilla in Sebastopol, welcome. Hi, thank you so much for taking my call and for this topic. Um, What I wanted, it's more of a comment, just focusing Mm -hmm. on where we as a society place our value. And if we ask ourselves whether or not it is more valuable for a parent, a mother or a father to stay in the home and care for their children and care for them well, or to leave the home, put the care of their children in charge of somebody else so that they can go and work for a paycheck that often for a lot of people don't actually end up you know, making ends meet. And what, you know, everything that you're talking about, it breaks my heart because it's another way in which we as a culture prostrate ourselves to the shrine of productivity Mm -hmm. this this ultimate american value that somehow if we work for a paycheck it means that we have value and we're productive Mm -hmm. when honestly if you look at the work of parents that is some of the most noble work that there Mm -hmm. is and you know i i don't want to sound like pollyanna but i think that if we as a society supported mothers and fathers who were capable and able to stay and raise their kids effectively in home for the right amount of time rather than kicking people out and incentivizing them with these clearly broken incentive structures to be a productive working member of society. It's just so backwards. And I really appreciate you giving me the opportunity to share that comment. But, you know, it seems like a societal shift we need to make collectively about how we value what it is that we're doing for our children. Absolutely. Yeah. Camilla, thank you so much for, for that. I think, you know, uh, well, Chrissy, why don't you just respond to that? Because that is, there's an entire other conversation going on about the value of care work and how unwaged labor in the home should be thought of and all these other things. And it feels so disconnected from the policies that are currently in place around these work requirements. 
Absolutely. No, I mean, as soon as you start bringing in the federal government to define what counts as work, and they have these 12 activities that they've decided count as work according to this law, it exactly as the caller brought up, it, it raises the question of, well, so what are you saying doesn't count as work? And as I was saying before, you know, for many years, uh, for decades, uh, the welfare program, the whole point of it was to help allow women, often women or parents, um, to stay in the home to raise their children in those early years. Um, what's sort of ironic, if you look at the 12 list, the 12 work activities that are approved, one of them is providing child care services to an individual who's participating in a community service program. So it's this irony of raising, caring for your own children, that is not considered work in according mm -hmm. to these 12 these to this this to these 12 activities but watching somebody else's child is considered work so mm -hmm. you know you just sort of create you realize sort of mm -hmm. if, if you take that to its logical extension it's like okay so if i can we just switch like i'll watch your kids you watch my kids and then it, then it will count then it would work. yeah you know <laughs> so. um chrissy you know as as we note the way that this system is working and your whole podcast really builds this case against work requirements at this very same moment, this whole negotiation over the debt limit that's happening mm -hmm. has Republicans pushing to add work requirements to even more things. Is this sort of driving you nuts, honestly, as someone who's been working on this, obviously, for years? Yeah, I mean, it is as the headlines that we just heard. It was it was the first one. You know, this this has become a centerpiece of what um, uh, House Republicans are demanding uh, in in return for lifting the debt ceiling, and it has been a very. Uh, it's it's been an uncanny feeling because I have been looking at this sort of what what has felt at moments I think to people when I describe it as a very obscure topic, but I because I have been reporting this deeply I've known that this is actually something that has been kind of bubbling bubbling in the background for a while. This there's actually kind of a movement, what people call welfare reform 2.0, basically ever since um, cash mm. welfare got these um, these work requirements put into it, there has been a movement that has, I will add, been um, been pushed and endorsed by some of these private uh, for-profit welfare companies that we're talking about. They spend millions of dollars in lobbying um, and campaign contributions around putting more work requirements into more safety net mm -hmm. programs. So it has been this, um, it's it's this issue that has been bubbling up and it is now coming to a head. And, and it, 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 my mom is very excited now because she's like, oh, that's what you've been talking about yeah, for the right, last couple right. of years. Now I understand it. Why this is important. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I, I do wonder, you know, is yeah. this something, the rhetoric is so easy to just turn into a soundbite without getting into what do these requirements actually mean? Is this actually helping people get the jobs that they want to support their families, or is it doing something else? And I think I, I just hope that 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 what this actually looks like on the ground and what the research shows can um, be part of the conversation that yeah. we're that, that is being had right now in the White House. Yeah. We're talking about the welfare to work industrial complex with Chrissy Clark, host and producer of Marketplace's investigative podcast, The Uncertain Hour. Their new season is all about these things. Have you turned to welfare or a cash aid program for help during hard times? What was your experience like? 
What myths do you think you've heard about the way that welfare works? You can give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or KQED Forum. We want to add Jeannie Kwong, a reporter with Cal Matters, to our discussion. Welcome, Jeannie. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for thanks for joining us. You know, a lot of Chrissy's work focused on Wisconsin, which was sort of an innovator in adding work requirements. And California, as I understand it, has tried to get around or loosen or make these work requirements work uh, more effectively. Can you talk a little bit about California's approach to this issue? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, it was very striking to hear um, the stories that Chrissy shared because that feeling of, um, you know, pressure on families and recipients that receive welfare to uh, just sort of get into any job, get into any work activity. um, I heard that here in California, too, despite all of um, the Mm. state's efforts to move away from some of those requirements. Um, But but the state has done um, a lot more than than other places to try to make the program more flexible and maybe respond to to the needs of families that are in crisis a little better. Um, mm. So they have really, um, you know, added these state level rules um, so that if you're on um, welfare, which here in California is known as CalWORKs, um, you can. Um, participate in a range of other activities to to meet the rules. Um, One of the big ones being um, you can attend a community college or or any other kind of um, educational program. Um, And that's something that people really pushed for as a way to try to actually get people into better opportunities in the future rather than sort of um, just getting any old minimum wage job that might never really get you ahead and might one day leave you uh, needing welfare again. Um, So those are some of the ways that the state has really tried to open up the program Mm. more, make it less restrictive, um, less burdensome on on recipients. Um, But there is still the federal rule that hangs over everyone's heads. This work participation rate that we were talking about earlier, right? Yeah, absolutely. Like that single metric that the federal government uses to judge your program and um, threaten to withhold funding if you if you don't reach that number. Hmm. Do we have any sense yet? I'm sure people are studying this, but of course, you know, there's all the crosswinds of the federal and state rules and all the implementation in all the different counties. And I know this is difficult mm-hmm. to study, but do we have a sense, Jeannie, of if these changes in California are just helping people more? Well, I do think the state is more generous than than other states. I mean, even just the the amount that you can get on TANF here, it it is higher than other places. Um, And um, the state itself accounts for probably about a third of the whole country's cash welfare Mm -hmm. caseload, because a lot of other states have sort of undone those sort of direct cash programs. Um, So I do think it is it it is more supportive than than other states have been um but the effect of these more flexible rules are still being studied um and and one of the things that has come out so far in some of the reports that the state has commissioned is that 
it is very difficult to administer these, um, you know, kind of loosened rule changes because a lot of the county caseworkers that um, administer these programs and are, are responsible for kind of telling each recipient, like, here's the different activities you can do, or you can, you know, go to school or you can um, mm -hmm. get some counseling services for if you're in a domestic violence situation, or if you didn't get a high school diploma, you know, you might be eligible to receive welfare while working towards that. Um, you know, a lot of those workers that are responsible for for making this program work for people, they feel the pressure of that mm. federal rule. They feel the pressure that, um, you know, they've described in interviews with you know, with the researchers that are doing these reports um, that their jobs are on the line, that they might still be penalized at work if they don't get a certain number of people into those, you know, one of those 12 federal work activities um, that their county might pressure them because they might um, be financially penalized by the federal government if they don't reach that. So that's something that's kind of quietly a, a debate right now at the state government level here in the Capitol um, is, you know, should the state sort of shoulder that financial risk of, you know, loosening the program requirements more at the state level for people here and then kind of taking the risk that they might get penalized by the federal government um, as a result. Yeah. And is that One what you've heard around? Just... Yeah, Chrissy. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to add to that. What's interesting, I was actually looking through a contract that um, the that uh, I think Los Angeles County has with one of the for-profit welfare companies, um, uh, Maximus, uh, around TANF. And one of the, we were talking about those performance incentives. One of the metrics that the um, that the company is held to is are they meeting the work participation rate? So mm. you could see how that can play out in exactly the way that Jeannie is talking about, where sure, it's great to say, oh, and, or you could do this other stuff and you won't be penalized. But as a caseworker, caseworkers get bonuses often in, in, in certain offices for um, getting sort of for helping their company meet the performance incentives that, mm -hmm. they, that have been written into the contract. So you see how it sort of trickles down to the to the, the the desks where you're having these conversations of like I don't want my company's telling me we need to meet the work participation rate so that's yeah. that's what we're gonna do. <laughs> we're talking about the welfare to work industrial complex with Chrissy Clark, host and producer of Marketplace's investigative podcast The Uncertain Hour, and Jeannie Kwong, a reporter at Cal Matters who's been covering CalWorks here in the state. We're gonna get to more of your calls right after the break. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about the development and operation of the welfare-to-work industrial complex with Chrissy Clark, host and producer of Marketplace's investigative podcast, The Uncertain Hour, and Jeannie Kwong, a reporter at Cal Matters, who's been covering what we call welfare here in the state of California. I want to bring in another caller, Colleen in San Rafael. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks so much for having me on, and thank you so much for covering this topic that um, was very important to me. I was a corporate loyal corporate worker, a marketer, um, for many years. I owned a home for 10 years. I ended up having a surprise baby who was 18 months old when I was laid off during sort of the end of the, re- the Great Recession. Mm. And I had a very interesting experience um, you know, I, I lowered all of my expenses. I had a $10,000 severance that I thought I could live on until I found another job. And I went right to work trying to find another job. Um, and what ended up happening, I couldn't find one. I came, it appeared that I came with an expensive price tag, um, which in a way I did. I had a mortgage and a child that would need child care. And those are two of the most expensive things to handle as uh, a family, much less a single mom. And so I couldn't compromise on the type of job and the type of work that I got. Uh, I had friends say, why don't you work at Starbucks? And I said, well, mm-hmm. at $9 an hour, how's that going to cover my expenses? <laughs> so after two and a half years, I cried uncle and I short sold my house, which was very traumatic. I didn't have a place to go, mm-hmm. but I had friends that took me in. And my first stop was in Sonoma County. Um, where I lived with a friend and I went into a welfare-to-work program that I only qualified for because I lost everything. Mm. Um, in fact, my car had to be devalued because I was actually $100 over in the value of my car. Otherwise, I wouldn't have qualified, but a wonderful mm. social worker um, said, don't worry, and used some ink and changed the price so that I would qualify. Mm. And so what this was, this particular program, was the very last one available to parents. Um, And what it required you to do was to take a, I don't know if it was four weeks, six weeks, how to get a job program in exchange Mm -hmm. for a child care subsidy. And my experience going into that program was probably one of the more depressing human experiences of my life. It was humiliating for me because as a white-collar worker who's in charge of, you know, developing employees on a corporate level and very well trained, I I had like eight different, you know, resumes for Mm. different scenarios, and I knew exactly how to get a job, but I was sitting in a room day after day having to dress up as if I was going to the office. It was a requirement with Mm. people who were very, very downtrodden and depressed. And so there was a therapist on site. And long story short, I ended up um, having to move out of a situation I was in. I went to Marin County where it was even worse. The subsidy did not, I I got a job, but it was at a grocery store for $12 an hour. Um, I begged and they gave me a job. I said, I just need to work. Even if it's a thousand bucks a month, it's better than So the subsidy changed and shifted. Marin County's child care 
costs are much, much higher. But the people, our friends, wonderful friends who took us in, um, offered to support us until uh, and moved up in the job. Wow. So the problem was is that child care, the subsidy was around, I think, seven or $800. And anybody who knows that, you know, an eight-year-old two to three thousand dollars at best yeah and unfortunately i lived in mill valley so Man. it went on i've never recovered fully from this experience um there's been a million people who lost their homes during that time yeah uh, i don't know how many were people like me but um i have never gained that traction and i'm really left with what i call economic ptsd that mm-hmm. that fright of being unstable and i also just one additional comment um the woman from sebastopol called about exchanging you know that value i've had to make a choice do i go and drive across the bridge and make one hundred fifty thousand dollars you know a year and then pay seventy thousand and a fair wage for my child to be raised by a nanny or do i settle for less of a smaller salary and more struggle so that i can be a parent and i chose plan b mm-hmm. um it's a sacrifice but it's a sacrifice worthwhile but this yeah. is coming from somebody who's educated you know had a background had is a worthy worker you know understands her values is mature enough to make those decisions in favor but not you know i would say that there are very few people like me out there thank you Colleen, thanks for uh, sharing your story with us. Um, you know, I, Chrissy, the system doesn't seem to work for any of the kinds of folks. I mean, it can. You do share some outcomes in the podcast. It's very fair. You share some outca- outcomes that it really worked for people. But more people that you talk to have stories more like Colleen's where things didn't go yeah. well. So if it's not working as intended for you know people who are who need assistance who is it working for that's a good question i mean and also just to thank you for sharing your story colleen and i you know it it is so resonant with so many of the stories that i heard you know exactly the what you were saying about you know, I I want to work. I like I, I mm-hmm. I've got a resume. Darnetta, actually, the woman that you played a clip from earlier. I mean, she had a very similar experience. She had a good job history, um, but just needed that. She, what she called a push. She just needed a little help getting connected to some jobs. And the jo- the first work experience she was told she was going to do after the caseworker had looked at her resume was doing unpaid labor in a food warehouse where she was going to be packing boxes of food for a food bank. And that was going to be in exchange for her welfare check, which mm-hmm. was, you know, if you did the math, that was she was making less than minimum wage, basically, for the work she was doing. And she she protested. She ultimately got a, a job, a work experience job that was slightly more suited to her. It was in an office, but it just, it to her, it just felt like this is, like, help me out, guys. This is, this is not. I want to work, but I can't. I can't do this kind of work. I'm not going to be able to sort, support my family. It's going to put me right back in the, right. the place I was. But as you said, so you know what what is happening is that there are these companies that have really built a business on this system. Um, there is a whole industry around it. And and in fact, you know, if you look at some of the 
PowerPoint presentations at shareholder uh, events for companies like Maximus. It's it, it's publicly uh, traded, so there's a little more transparency in terms of their business models there. And what you see is, you know, they they show as welfare reform, like welfare reform, quote unquote, putting more work requirements into more welfare programs. That is a part of their that that is necessary for their business to continue to grow. And so they have really, they, they sort of are this, they have this vested interest in perpetuating the system and and spreading the system to other programs. And so that's sort of where this idea, this term that I, I coined of the, the welfare to work industrial complex, mm-hmm. there's sort of this, these, these businesses that are entrenched now that rely on taxpayer dollars to perpetuate their businesses, to, to keep their businesses running, mm-hmm. and then they have an interest in perpetuating that model. So it becomes kind of this cycle. Well, and you, these, the amount of money they're getting, and this is kind of the key moment for me, at least in the whole podcast, is you compare the amount of money that one of the people mm-hmm. in your podcast is getting to the amount that the company that helped her was getting. And the conclusion mm-hmm. was for the whole time she was on welfare, it looked like one of the companies, Maximus, had gotten about as much money, if not more, than the person who needed that help. Yeah. 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 And that is um, that 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 was this woman, Quanessa. You know, it was really interesting just because we had I'm sorry, there is a printer that is (laughs) (laughs) magically printing behind me right now. Um, But uh, so, yeah, there's basically, you know, we looked at because we could look at these contracts and we did a lot of public records requests to see, okay, how how is the money flowing here? What Mm -hmm. are these companies getting? And yeah, we looked. So this woman, Quanessa, she had gone through a welfare to work program. Um, she had been put into a job uh, doing janitorial work, which then when I actually looked close, more closely at her resume, she'd already been doing that kind of work mm. before she had gone to welfare. And in fact, that was part of what had made her, it was low paying enough that she had been financially unstable enough that she had to turn to welfare. Um, but when she got put into a new janitorial job with the help of Maximus. And she was actually very appreciative of the resume coaching that she got from the company. You know, she felt like she got some valuable skills. But if you compared for Maximus, for the money that they got for managing her case and for the these rewards that they got for putting her in a job or connecting her with this janitorial job, they made as you said, about the same amount of money, if not more, in in taxpayer dollars just managing that one case than Quanessa actually got in cash assistance for her time on welfare. And I also want to follow the who benefits question all the way through to the end, too, which is that in many cases, these welfare-to-work private companies, as well as the nonprofits, feed people both into temp jobs, which you found is a huge percentage of jobs are getting, as well as other kinds of low-wage work, right? So at the end of the day, it's a McDonald's or a sausage factory or some some other company at the end of the line which benefits from having this pool of people who are being forced to work for them, more or less. Right. It's kind of that, you know, if you think about sort of Econ 101, you know, if you that right now, as we know, we are in a tight labor market. You hear lots of companies talking about the labor shortage. Um, and if you have uh, this pool of folks who are turning to welfare because they, they need help, they might have had a low paying job that wasn't helping them make ends meet. Something happened. Then they 
go to a welfare to work program and get sort of hand delivered, funneled right back into one of these low paying jobs, often a temp job in Wisconsin. It's almost 70 percent of the jobs that people on welfare have are temporary jobs. And so that's kind of helping prop up those industries, the, the temp industry, other low-wage, often service industry um, jobs, they're hungry for labor. And if they have a real, and they often have cozy relationships with these um, private welfare-to-work mm -hmm. companies. And so if they are getting sort of this nice stream of people who really are need to work, are being mm -hmm. told they need to work right away. That's a As huge age. Colleen's that. example was, yeah. yeah, you know, she they they know that that job is not going to help them get out of poverty, but they need yeah. to take it because yep. they don't have an alternative. We are talking with Chrissy Clark, host and producer of Marketplace Investigative Podcast, The Uncertain Hour. This is a fundraising period for KQED Public Radio. For more information about how to support KQED, Go to kqed.org. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Let's um, go back to the phones. We've got uh, Juan in Oakland. Welcome. Hi. Um, my name is Luann. Oh, Luann. My, my apologies. No, no worries. Um, thank you so much for um, talking about this uh, subject. It's so important. Um, I myself grew up in a family, an immigrant family that grew up on welfare. And then later, um, I went to law school and became a public benefits attorney. Um, the topic that you're talking about in terms of the economics of sort of capitalism and this work requirement has been something that's been touched about um, in the work um the socialist work movement for years, and Tower and Piven talked about it in, in the context of how these welfare pro programs are designed in such a way as to give people so little option that they have to go out and work. And mm -hmm. if you look at the grants across the various parts of the United States, uh, even in California, though, you know, California is much better because of our own recognition of that you'll find that the grants are so small. And, like, when I was doing research on this 10 years ago, like in Tennessee, the grant was, like, $178 mm. or something crazy like that. And, and it's still that it's low. I was just looking. Even 10 years yeah. later in Mississippi, wow. it's, like, $150, I think. Wow. Yeah. And, 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 um, and, and this is true throughout much of the country. And when you have that couple with the requirement of having forcing people to work um you know there is there there is this sort of like movement right and i saw it when i was working with my clients who would be ihs workers or ihs workers taking home care workers taking mm -hmm. care of people who are sick or they will work at walmart right mm -hmm. and they would be in these um part-time jobs at Walmart that just wouldn't make enough wouldn't make enough for them to support their family. So there would be, uh, you know, and Walmart would be subsidized because we would be subsidizing them mm -hmm. through our public benefits program. So there is some of that happening by virtue of the fact that, like, when people do work, we take some of their money away, right? It's not like they get to work and keep all of it. Like, the structural incentive is that you get to keep some of it, and we, the government, get to keep some of it. 
I will tell you, too, that, like, in the context of the way that work is uh, uh, structured right now, like, you know, the, the idea that we can help people get minimum wage or living wage jobs from these programs, that's simply not the case. Not and the number is not there now, yeah. whether it's nationally or in the state of California, what does work is really this pathway to education, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Um, and and for hey, Luann, I, I, I want to. Sorry. Let me. Um, I no. I just want to. Um, I want to give. We're getting. We're getting to the end of the hour here, and I just wanted to give. I mean, you said a lot of things, and I want to give uh, Chrissy Clark a, a chance to respond, and maybe also to answer the deeper question that's embedded in a lot of the things that callers have said, and that are, are part of your podcast, which is. Is there a better way? Like, what is the solution to getting out of this conundrum we put ourselves in? Well, it's interesting. Um, I got to speak with one of the architects of kind of welfare to work um, across the country. Wisconsin, as you said, was one of the um, one of the test kitchens, an early pioneer of these welfare work requirements. But the governor of Wisconsin, Tommy Thompson, who later went on to run the Department of Health and Human Services uh, in the Bush administration, he was a champion evangelist of this whole idea of welfare to work. And when I spoke with him a few months ago, it was really interesting because part of what he had really sold the program on back in the 90s was, you know, we're going to, this program is going to help people become, um, you know, become welders and become teachers and become nurses. And we're going to help, we're going to help people who are struggling get these high wage jobs. And I I talked to him about the track record and what the major employers are, temp companies, Walmart, McDonald's, Amazon. And I said, you know, these are not the kinds of jobs that um, that you were touting in the 90s. These are these are jobs that are not paying living wages. And he said, yeah, you're right. It didn't work out like (laughs) like this was supposed to. And his big thing was that there needs to be more money put into vocational training. Mm-hmm. Right now, a very small fraction of these programs, um, money goes towards education, vocational training. I think in Wisconsin, it's like 0.5% or 0.05%. Mm. Um, so one thing is, you know, even Tommy Thompson, a Republican, is saying we should be putting more money into this. That, though, yeah. is not what... Um, not, that's not at the what is on the table right yeah. now. Yeah, that's yeah. not happening. We've been talking about the development of the welfare-to-work industrial complex with Chrissy Clark, host and producer of Marketplace's investigative podcast, The Uncertain Hour. Thanks for joining us, Chrissy. Thank you so much for having me. The new season of the podcast is all about this. You can check it out. We've also been joined by Jeannie Kwong, a reporter at CalMatters, covering welfare here in the state of California. Thank you so much for providing that context, Jeannie. Thank you. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour of Forum Ahead with Scott Schaefer. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.